We've been going through the series in Jonah, and it's not about a fish. Uh, it's about full submission. Um, and full submission requires obedience. You cannot be fully submitted to God unless you're practicing obedience in your life. It's not partial submission, it's full submission. And full submission requires obedience. Arabian horses go through a rigorous training in the deserts of the Middle East. Trainers require absolute obedience from their horses and test them to see if they are completely trained. The final test is almost beyond the endurance of any living thing. The trainers force the horses to do without water for many days. Then he turns them loose, and of course they start running towards the water. But just as they get to the edge, ready to plunge for a drink, the trainer blows his whistle. The horses who have been completely trained and who have learned perfect obedience stop. They turn around and they come pacing back to their trainer. They stand there quivering, wanting water, but they wait in perfect obedience. When the trainer is sure that he has their obedience, he gives them a signal and they go back for a drink. Now this may seem severe, but when you're in a trackless desert of Arabia and your life is entrusted to a horse, you had better train an obedient horse. What if we obeyed? I mean, what if we really obeyed? Like the type of obedience that says, I don't care what this book says, but I'm going to follow it to a T. Anything. If I don't like it, if it's uncomfortable, I will obey. What if we obey? If it's uncomfortable, I don't care, I'm doing it. I mean, truly a stubborn obedience to this book and to God. What if we obeyed? Let's look at what happened when Jonah finally obeyed. Turn in your Bibles to Jonah chapter 3. While you turn there, let me remind you what we've seen so far. In Jonah chapter 1, Sean was talking about Jonah, this prophet of God, Israel, a Jewish man. God sends him on a mission. He says, I want you to go to the people of Nineveh, and I want you to preach against the city. First prophet to ever be uh, sent to a Gentile nation. Jonah says, I'm going to go in the exact opposite direction, direct rebellion to God. Jonah chapter 2, God shows Jonah who truly is in charge. I will track you down with a whale if I have to, and I'll wait till you realize that I'm in charge and I'm in control, and once you say, okay, I'll do it your way, I'll give you compassion. God is in control even when we think we are. When we think we can go one direction and we can force God's hand, he's sovereign. And he'll track us down. And now we're looking at Jonah chapter 3. Let's read together. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. Go to the great city of Nineveh and proclaim the message that I give to you. And Jonah obeyed the word of the Lord, and he went to Nineveh. Now Nineveh was a very important city. A visit required three, three days. On the first day, Jonah started into the city, proclaimed, Forty days, and Nineveh will be overturned. The Ninevites believed God, and they declared a fast. All of them, and the greatest to the least, put on sackcloth. When the news reached the king of Nineveh, he rose from his throne, took off his royal robes, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat down in the dust. And then he issued a proclamation in Nineveh by the decree of the king and his nobles. Do not let any man or beast, herd or flock, taste anything. Do not let them eat or drink. But let, the, let man and his beast be covered with sackcloth. Let everyone call urgently on God. Let him give up his evil ways and their violence. Who knows? God may yet relent 
and with compassion turn from his fierce anger so that we will not perish. And when God had saw what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, he had compassion, and he did not bring on them the destruction he had threatened. I love the beginning of chapter 3 because he goes back to the exact same thing in verse 2 of chapter 1. Now that we got the rebellion out of the way, and now that you realize that I am God, and I do get what I want, why don't you go back to that city and preach what I told you to preach to them? It's almost comical. All right. Um, go to that great city. Proclaim the message I give to you. Now that you realize that I'm in control, God's will cannot and will not be ignored. He goes there for three days. And really the idea is it's enough time. It's not a huge city, but uh, enough time to where he could preach on every corner if he needed to. Every square, every town hall, every place, so that when he's done, everybody in the city of Nineveh would know the message that God has for the people. By the time it was done, the bulk of the populace knew exactly what was going on. His message was simple. 40 days, and your city will be overturned. Maybe it was a period of grace. Why 40 days? I don't know. Maybe he wanted to give him some time to think about it. But it didn't take 40 days. We look in verse 4. After day 1, they are already repenting. After day 1, they are already repenting. Sathcloth, fasting, they go hand in hand. They're symbols of contrition, humiliation. Even the king, even the animals were participating in this fast. Can you imagine an animal with sathcloth? As if they could repent? Obviously, the idea is we need God. We're lost without him. Sathcloth is a coarse, the coarsest of cloth. It's made out of goat hair. It, it, it's common dress for prisoners and slaves and the poor. Used when mourning, usually only covering the parts that decency requires you to cover. The idea we are completely unable to contend with God, we are truly his slaves. And the whole city is participating in this, calling out to God in repentance. It's kind of an interesting thing. The Assyrians are known to be a cruel and violent people. Uh, they fear no one. Critical scholars will look at this and say, this obviously isn't true because we know the Assyrians over history to be, you know, tougher than that. I mean, you just get Jonah to go preach at the city and day one they already start repenting. This just doesn't make sense. This isn't the same Assyrians that we see in history. And so they'll take a charge at Scripture and say that it's not, it's not accurate. Well, we know a couple things. We know the Assyrian leaders were, were really into omen texts and viewed them as prophetic, viewed them as predictions in the future. And There were several omen texts going around at the time um, maybe God used them, I don't know, but uh, things like an enemy will invade you, uh, things like a total, to total solar eclipse will happen, things like a famine is coming, or a severe flood which would destroy crops, crops and contaminate the water, earthquakes uh, as thought to be evidence of divine wrath. If any one of a number of these things happened, you can see why they'd be ready to repent to God. Now, I don't know if they did happen, but we know that they were in text and predictions that they would happen, and it kind of makes sense. If God used it and let it happen, then all of a sudden they'd be ready. Kind of like 9-11. I wasn't here during 9-11 yet. I wasn't at Valley yet, but uh, in my church in L.A., it, it felt like the Sunday after 9-11, our church tripled in size. Every seat was taken. It seemed like after a huge catastrophe, um, everybody was turning towards the Lord. And that, that's kind of maybe what we have going on in Nineveh. You can imagine a total 
solar eclipse and then an earthquake, yeah, we're ready to hear from God. And God relents. God has compassion on Nineveh based on their repentance, and he relents. The same compassion that was given to Jonah in chapter 2 is now given to Nineveh, and it spares them for judgment for another 150 years. God would judge Nineveh 150 years later. Maybe the next generation turned back to its wicked ways. But this, this people and this generation saw what the prophet in Jeremiah said, if at any time I declare concerning a nation or a kingdom that I will pluck up, break down, or destroy it, and if that nation about which I have spoken turns from its evil, I will change my mind about the harm I intended to do to it. Our God is patient. He's not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance, according to 2 Peter 3, 9. So what if we obeyed? What if we obeyed? What if we shared the message of the gospel with people around us? What if we obeyed? We serve a compassionate God. What would he do? Look at what he did with Jonah. 120,000 people in the city of Nineveh, and all of them repent. Some scholars don't even believe that must be adults. It's probably more like 300,000 people. What if we obeyed? Who would he bring to repentance? Who would he save if we obeyed? Would all of your co-workers come to know Jesus if you obeyed? What about that boss that you hate and you despise and you look at him and that person is just the opposite of godliness, the opposite of who God is? You despise their actions, you despise their values. What if you obeyed? Would God save him? Would God save her and change her values, change his actions? Would God save Victoria by the bay if we obeyed? Would God save the city of Rodeo if we obeyed? Would God bring to repentance the city of Hercules if we obeyed? If God can bring a whole city to repentance when his servant obeys, can he save the people in your neighborhood? Can he save the neighbor to the left and right of you and across the street from you? Can he bring them to repentance? What if we obeyed? What would he do? Not what could he do, what would he do? So why don't we? Why don't we share? Why do we go silent? Could it be that we don't understand the gravity of the situation? Is our focus off on what it really should be on? I want to illustrate this for you using the Bible. And once you turn with me to the book of 2 Kings, 2 Kings chapter 7. If you're new here and you're having a hard time finding it, I'm having a hard time right now. It's a big book. Persevere, you'll find it. 2 Kings chapter 7. While you're looking for it, let me give you some context. There's a severe famine in the land. There's no food. It's a city under siege by the Arameans. Uh, they're starving them out. Two ways to conquer a city. You go in with all your artillery, all your army, and you fight and kill everybody you see and then take the resources of the city. You conquer the city. That's one way to do it, but if you do it that way, you run the risk of uh, getting a lot of casualties. You run the risk of losing men. Second way to do it is put your army around that city and just wait. You wait long enough and you stop resources from coming in and going out. What do you have? You have a man-made famine. That's exactly what's going on right here. In chapter 6, it's so bad that you have mothers making deals with other mothers. So, uh, we'll kill my child today and eat my child today. Tomorrow, we'll kill your child and eat your child. Except for tomorrow, that mother is hiding her baby. That's how severe the famine is. It's a starving city, and there's lepers at the gate. Lepers are people with a very contagious disease, a disease that eats away at their body. 
they were isolated from the rest of the public so that it wouldn't spread. And so they stay at the city gates of the type of guys you watch on TV with a bell around their neck and stay away from me, I'm unclean type of a thing. But they would stay at the city gates so they could still eat off the resources of the city and live, but they weren't allowed to be with the general populace. This story is about those lepers. 2 Kings chapter 7. Let's look at verse 3. Now there were four men with leprosy at the entrance of the city gate. They said to each other, why stay here until we die? If we say we'll go into the city, the famine is there and we will die. If we stay here, we will die. So let's go over to the camp of the Arameans and surrender. They may spare us. We live. If they kill us, then we die. At dusk they got up and went to the camp of the Arameans. When they reached the edge of the camp, they, not a man was there. For the Lord had caused the Arameans to hear a sound of chariots and horses and a great army. So they said to one another, Look, the king of Israel has hired the Hittites, the Egyptian kings, to attack us. So they got up and fled in the dusk and abandoned their tents, their horses, and their donkeys. And they left the camp as it was and ran for their lives. The men who had leprosy reached the edge of the camp and entered one of the tents. They ate and drank and carried away silver, gold, and clothes. They went off and hid them. And they returned and entered another tent and took some things from it and hid them also. And then they said to each other, We are not doing right. This is the day of good news, and we are keeping it to ourselves. And then they said to each other, We are not doing right. This is the day of good news, and we are keeping it to ourselves. Then they said to each other, We are not doing right. This is a day of good news, and we are keeping it to ourselves. If we wait until daylight, punishment will overtake us. Let us go at once. I report this to the royal palace. Simple story, four lepers sitting at the city gate. We have three options, three doors to go through. Door number one, stay right here. We die. Door number two, go into the city. The famine's there too. We die. Door number three, we go to the army that is attacking us and we surrender. Most likely, we'll die. But there's a chance that they'll have pity on us and they'll have compassion and we live. We'll take door number three. So they go there. They find the camp completely abandoned. God makes the army here. Other armies from the north and the south, they get scared. They leave, thinking that allies have come to defend the city. They leave so fast, they don't even have time to pick up anything. Their food, their animals, tents, silver, gold. And what do these lepers do? What would you do? Eat. They start eating. Like after church, when you go to hometown buffet, you eat. They had a smorgasbord. They're just, can you imagine? They walk in a tent and the red lights, the heating lamps are there. They didn't have red lights back then, but walk with, work with me here. <laughs> after they get full of their stomach, they start taking the gold and the silver, they start hiding it away. But somewhere along the way, they say to themselves, this is not right. We can't do this. We can't sit here and eat of this feast knowing that there's a city over there that is starving. They're eating their children. We can't sit here and enjoy this and have seconds and thirds and fourths when there's a city over there physically dying. We can't do that. That's wrong. That's selfish. They have enough sense to realize that they can't do that. 
Did you know the Bible describes Jesus Christ as the bread of life? Did you know the Bible describes Jesus as the bread of life? He is the bread of life to a starving world, to a world that is spiritually starving. And although it's a story about physical famine and physical hunger, the principle is still the same. It is selfish of us to sit here and feast on the Lord and not tell anyone about the good news. It is selfish of us to come to know Jesus, to come to church every week, to enjoy the things we have in God, to study more, to to get filled up on what he's done for us and not tell anyone. It's selfish. What if we obeyed? Why don't you share? Who is out there that God is ready to draw if you would just open your mouth? What would God do if we obeyed? In some ways, I think it's kind of funny that I drew this chapter. I think this is chapter made for Pastor Gacy in our reach out ministry, but it's just the way the month fell. I happen to have a huge heart for the lost, and so it works out well. Can you imagine the city of Hercules as a whole coming to repentance? I have to be honest with you, I can't imagine it. But it happened in Jonah. The whole city repents. What if we obeyed? You see, we put people in one of two categories. Every person you run across, you put them in one of two categories. I do this too. We would never tell anybody this. We would never say it out loud, but we do this. Category number one is people that I would love to see in heaven with me. People I would love to see in heaven with me. Category number two is people that I'm really not that concerned if they go to hell. That's what Jonah did. He wasn't excited about his mission. Category number two is people that I would not mind if they go to hell. Now, we would never say this out loud, but we do this. And you know what distinguishes which category they're in? Do you know what distinguishes whether they're in category A or category B? Whether or not you say or strategize in any way to win them for Christ. The people that I want to go to heaven with me, I do something about. The people that I'm not really that concerned about, I say nothing. What if we obeyed? You know, this is a little bit more real for me in this sense. I didn't grow up in church. The only church I've ever known is Valley Bible Church. And I was introduced to Valley Bible Church when I was 14, 15 years old. I didn't have these truths at my disposal every week in my life. I didn't have Sunday school and Awanas and all those things. I learned all that stuff after 14 years old. I went to college. When I was 18, I went to a Bible school, and they're teaching these stories about Jonah, and I literally have never heard them before. And everybody else is bored in the room, and I'm like, this is unbelievable. He got swallowed by a whale. I'm literally learning these things about Jesus and his life on earth, and, and I'm going through these, these classes that would teach me the gospel, and I'd go to these seniors, I'd tell me more, tell me more, I need to know more. And they would am- be amazed at me. You're so, you love that story? Yes, I do, I've never heard it before. I was reading the Bible for the first time. There was no mother praying for me, there was no father praying for me, no grandmother, grandfather, uncles, aunties. No one knew Christ in my family. It took somebody in this church to love my mother enough to invade her life, to show her the love of Jesus, and to introduce me 
to her husband who would give me a ride here 20 miles out of it. He lived in Richmond. He, dr- he lived in Hercules. He'd drive to Richmond, bring me to church. When church was over, he'd drive to Richmond, come back home. It took somebody thinking outside of themselves saying, I want, I want Jesus Christ to come to an outsider. Somebody who has no hope besides, the, there is no one to tell them. That was me. It's a beautiful story, isn't it? I come to this church, I get saved here. I go off to school, I get, get education, then I go off to seminary, graduate seminary and come back and become a pastor at this church. It's a beautiful story. But if it was left to you, would you have told me about Christ? Would it ever come out of your mouth? I wonder right now if the next pastor at Valley Bible Church is unsaved and one of your friends. I wonder if God would save him if you spoke up. I wonder what he would do if we obeyed. Who is God ready to bring to repentance if we spoke up? Could the next Billy Graham be in your sphere of influence? What if we obeyed? Many years ago, in St. Louis, a lawyer visited a Christian to transact some business. Before the two parted, the client said to him, I've often wanted to ask you a question, but I've been too afraid. What do you want to know, the lawyer asked. The man replied, I wondered why you are not a Christian. The man hung his head. I know enough about the Bible to know that it says no drunkard can enter the kingdom of God. And you know my weakness. You're avoiding my questions, continued the believer. Well, truthfully, I can't recall anyone ever explaining how to become a Christian. Picking up his Bible, the client read some passages showing that all are under condemnation but that Christ came to save the lost by dying on the cross for their sins. By receiving him as your substitute and redeemer, he said, you can be forgiven. If you're willing to receive Jesus, let's pray together. The lawyer agreed, and when, he was, when it was his turn to pray, he exclaimed, Oh, Jesus, I'm a slave to the drink. One of your servants has shown me how to be saved. Oh, God, forgive me of my sins and help me overcome the power of this terrible habit in my life. Right there, he was converted. That lawyer was C.I. Schofield, who later edited the Schofield Bible. What if we obeyed? What if we obeyed? My wife and I have targeted, uh, and I don't say this to toot my own horn, I'm just trying to use it to, to, to encourage and exhort. My wife and I have targeted our neighbors. We're, we're new in this community, and we're targeting our neighbors for Jesus Christ. I think I've told you before that we had a block party last summer, and, and we had just a wonderful turnout. We didn't say anything about Jesus. We just wanted to get to know our neighbors. Right when I say I'm a pastor, you have to understand, it's like saying I'm a murderer. They immediately start going through their mind. What did I say in front of him? What did I do in front of him? And so what I do is try my hardest to diffuse any of that. I'm just a regular person who happens to work for the Lord and get paid for it. And so the idea was that we were going to have a Christmas party too, but life got so busy, I wish I could say that I had this all planned out and everything went great, but it wasn't like that. Came home one day, I'm tired, and my wife says, we're going. And I said, no, we're not going anywhere. I'm the man of the house, and I decide where we're going. I had that whole little attitude. She goes, well, I made cookies, and I want to show our kids that it is better to give than to receive, and I want these neighbors to know that we love them in the name of Jesus. And so the Holy Spirit used my wife, rebuked in my spirit, and we went out door to door and we gave out these cookies with a little card that says come to Valley Bible Church to hear the the Christmas program we're hoping to see an opportunity at some point where God will give us an opportunity to share Christ with these people we're planning to have another another thing in the summer where we invite them to our backyard and we do something else and we're just 
developing a strategy where if God would open the door, it's for an opportunity, it's there. It's a strategy. What do you do? Do you strategize some way to reach people? Have you flavored yourself with salt so that you feel, you look different, you sound different, something's different about you? To where somebody might ask the question, what's different about you? And there goes the door of opportunity. Do you ever think that way? Well, I don't have the gift of evangelism. Who cares? Do you have the gift of obedience? When I came to Valley Bible Church, I love this church. We have so much teaching and great theology. And Pastor Phil, I used to get his tapes when I was in college and listen to him. Like I wasn't here, but I was here. I could quote sermons to you. And I came to Valley and I said, Phil, I'll come, but you have to let me reach the lost. I can't come unless you let me reach the lost. I can't come unless you free me up to reach the lost. I'm driven on that one topic. Of course, Phil isn't opposed to reaching the lost. I came to LGP. I came, we we started a ministry called LGP. Love God, love people. Why? Well, because we want to love God. Of course, we're going to preach the word. Of course, we're not going to make any excuses for the Bible. But then there's a love people side. We're going to reach somebody. We're going to come up with silly, stupid events that no one looks forward to on the staff side because it's just work. Night games and bungee soccer and, and, and camps and all this stuff that just drains you of all your energy. Why? Because at some point, they're going to hear. They may leave rejecting the gospel, but they're not going to reject me. And they're not going to reject anything we're doing beforehand. I want to make sure if they leave rejecting the gospel, it was only the gospel they rejected and nothing else. I don't care if I have to change worship styles, change the color in the room, change the carpet. I don't care what I need to change. I want them to leave with one rejection or acceptance, and that is the gospel of Jesus. We'd see baptism. I can't hardly do a baptism without crying. Why? Because it is a modern-day miracle of God. You have to understand, left to ourselves, we would never choose him. We would never choose him. We're so stuck in our sin, we would always reject him. It takes God to come into us, breathe into us the very faith that we would have to accept him. He breathes into us repentance. That is all a miracle of God. And then when they get into the baptismal, they're associating themselves with Jesus Christ. Saying, I am identifying myself with him. He's my salvation. Are you kidding me? It's a miracle. Why wouldn't you want to be a part of that? What if we obeyed? We're starting a new thing for for young adults called Generation Worship. We're doing it this Saturday, actually. If you're a young adult, you're welcome to come. It's a different style of of worship. I just went to a concert last night, got me lit for today, preaching. It was about 5,000 people, all, all of them 20 to 30 years old. They paid 50 bucks to go worship. The band would literally, the lead singer would step off the mic and people and, and everybody's hands are in their way and the song is still going because everybody in the crowd is singing. They didn't come to hear him sing. They came to worship. It's a different style. We're going to use that style and see if we can reach people. On, on this little card we say 18 to 35 and cool old people are invited too. And... <laughs> We mean that. If you're cool and you're old and you want to be there, you can be there. But, but don't, you're not allowed to say it's too loud. You're not allowed to say you don't like the music. We're trying to reach a demographic. On that little card, it says, our churched, other churched, and non-churched are welcome. That little phrase right there, I will say over and over and over again on that night. 
Our church, other church, and non-church are welcome. Our church, other church, and non-church are welcome. I will say that over and over and over again until everybody who comes to Generation Worship says, yeah, our church, other church, and, and non-church are welcome. Why? Well, our church, of course, we're reaching, we're reaching this demographic for our church. Other church, we're a big church. We can, we can be an encouragement to these smaller churches that have people in that demographic. And then non-church, why? Everything we see and sing about is the gospel. You know why? Because I want to see people get saved, that's why. So I want everybody to expect a non-believer in the room. And so I will culture and culture and culture that into the group. And so they're expecting non-believers in the room. So when they're next to somebody and they're not singing and they look weird like they're in judgment, they go, oh, that's okay, non-church are invited as well. Maybe I can get a chance to speak to them. We're looking for a new, new pastor. Yes, I'm Calvinistic. Yes, I'm Reformed. I love those truths. But I need somebody who's obedient as well. Somebody who wants to do the work of an evangelist. Somebody says, you know, Big Dave, you've reached these kids. You know how to do it. I will soak everything I can out of you. And I will do it. Because I want to see little kids come to know Jesus whose mom's on drugs. Whose dad beats them. Who know nothing. Who have no chance at the gospel, because there is no one praying for them in their family. The outsider, I need somebody who wants to do that. What if we obeyed? We think to ourselves that, that if we come to church every week and, and, and we go to a Bible study, or maybe we even lead the Bible study, and we lead our families in prayer, and we think to ourselves, I, I, this is what is acceptable to God. This is what God wants from me. I'm faithfully devoted to my church. I come and worship. I pray. I read the word. I'm serving. We think that's right. That's what we want. I'm, 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 I'm in Timothy class. I'm in a deeper truths class. I'm learning these deep things. My knowledge is growing. I'm becoming a more mature believer. And we think that's what God wants. And you know what? He does not want that, but he wants it for a specific purpose. He is equipping you to tell somebody. Did you know that he was saved at 15 years old? God could have took me home that night. And that night... I will, would have achieved more knowledge than I would have ever achieved in college and seminary. I, he could have, if he wanted to be efficient, would take me home that night. And, and if you took all the knowledge that I've, that I've been able to develop about Christ and the Bible until now, and added the rest of the knowledge of the rest of my life, that he could have took me home at 14 years old and I would have, in a second, acquired more knowledge than my whole lifetime of study. Did you know that? It is so obvious that he's not leaving us here for knowledge. He could give it to us and take us home in a second. He's leaving us here for a purpose. To reach people. To tell people. To share Christ. Oh, I know there's people in the room that will leave today and go, oh, that was, that was challenging, but that's not me. Okay, well, I'm, I'm resigned to that. Fine. But there's somebody here who will go to work this week, and because of this message, will tell somebody about Jesus. So my challenge to you, maybe today before you leave, write four names down in the first cover of your Bible, on the first page of your Bible. Four names of people that you're going to pray for to come to know Jesus, that you're going to strategize in some way, loving shape or form. I'm going to... I'm going to show them the love of Jesus, and then God is going to give me, oh, I pray for an opportunity to share, and that you're going to pray and pray and strategize and pray and strategize and pray until God gives you an opportunity. They may reject. I'm not telling you to stuff things down people's throat. There's enough people out there who know they're starving that they try to stuff food down people's throat who don't know they're starving. The Bible says the harvest is plentiful and the workers are so few. 
I don't need to waste, I'm not gonna throw my pearls before swine. If God's drawing them, okay. If he's not, shake the dust off your feet, go to the next one. Four names. People you're targeting. They're on your hit list. That if God would so have compassion, he would save through you. What if we obeyed? Not partial submission, full submission. I'm doing five other things really well, Big Dave. Well, God is calling you to the sixth thing. I don't know how to share my faith, Big Dave. Join the class. Sean's teaching people the Romans road. He'll teach you five different ways to share Jesus. Do something. What if we obeyed? What would God do if we obeyed? Would we have to go to five services? Two services on Saturday night? I don't care. It's not about numbers or money. It's about salvation. What if we obeyed?